but I will uh, kick off our series. So the other day, I went out for lunch, um, and as I was going out for lunch, I was walking on Courtney Place, and I've been checking out all these scooters that they have around. They're everywhere, and I'm always just like, ooh, another one. Let's take a look at it. And I was looking at the scooter, and someone came up to me, and they had this really like kind of warm smile and engaged me, and were like, they're pretty cool, eh? And I was like, yeah, they're awesome. Have you ridden one? And then as they were talking to me, I noticed from behind their back, they like took out this clipboard. And I was just like, oh, just like, you know, those genuine kind of connection moments that you have on the street with people. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're going to sell me something. And I find it really hard, especially the people on the street, because they uh, often represent causes which are quite important. Right? It's like Red Cross or, uh, yeah, there, there'll be like an environmental group out there. And they, these aren't volunteers that work for like that volunteer for that organization. They work for another company and they're just there to do their job. And I find it like real, all of a sudden becomes transactional. And what was really interesting is I was like talking to them about the scooter and there's this warm connection and how quickly I shelled. Like as soon as I saw the clipboard, it was like, ah, oh, done. Right? And, it was, and they could see it in my face. I was just closed. It was like a mode I engaged, the closed mode. And I just was like, no, I'm sorry, I, I have to get to my lunch. Obviously, I had time to gawk at the scooter, but I didn't have time to talk to them. But I felt so comfortable with that and just kept walking. And I, I've been fascinated by this in me over, over the last few years, noticing how much uh, I've I can close down, how quickly I can close down. And in fact, I don't, when I was, get, was out of uni, um, I was reading a, a magazine and they were talking about that, you know how they, there's all these people who study generations, like Gen Y and like, well, like they, they're marketers usually because um, they want to know how to sell to you. That's kind of the general motivation. And they were just like, there's this plague of apathy happening around this Gen Y group. And I, I got angry the first time I read it. I'm like, whatever, you don't know us. Apathetic. And, and, but one of the things that stood out to me over time is, is that how much uh, right now we're super connected, right? We, we hear about need all over the world almost instantly. And it hits us from all these different channels. And so we're, we're continually hit with need. And I, I find that one of my responses to that is this to shell up. Uh, and there's a, there's a particular kind of way in which we humans are almost geared for that. We're geared for the status quo. We're geared to keep focused on things as they are. And decision-making marketers exploit this, right? They call it the status quo bias. And what they say is the option that you already have in your hands, you're so much more likely to take than any other option they present to you. So they frame things. They make sure the first thing that you encounter is the one they want you to take, because then they can get you like locked to it. But in life, it also plagues us. Like it can plague us where we just, this is my life, this is my option, this is what I'm doing. Anything else we will frame as a loss. And so we are, so another example of this, I went to get curry Friday night. So my mom's in town, I wanted to get a curry. I, I'm someone who gets really anxious whenever I do anything. Like I just get this height of, oh man, what of all the things could happen here? So I always make a plan. Even if I don't tell you I have one, there is a plan inside me. And so I was like, I'm going to drive this way to get curry. I'm going to park here. That way I can get there and then leave and I'll go home. And I had this plan. And as I was walking to get curry, this guy was sitting on the street in Newtown, stopped me. And he was just like, hey, you got any money? And I like, looked at him and I was really like, surprised at my reaction. I was like, dude, this isn't in my plan. Like, what are you talking to me for? And then I engaged him and I, and I had a quick interaction with him. We had a quick conversation. Again, I had a lot of prepared responses uh, for him and then went to get curry. But as I was sitting there, I had just been preparing this talk and I was just like, 
this is such a great example to me of where my life has railroad tracks. I am on those tracks. If you interrupt me with your need, I see it as a derailment, as some sort of loss. And, and, and so I was sitting there like making a new plan of how I could then engage this person. And that plan completely failed because they were gone when I came out. Uh, but it was, it was this interaction that woke me up to the power of this railway that we lay for our lives. Like that we just have a track of our lives that we're going on. And uh, our response to it is to uh, kind of stick to it. So I think there's like two forces at play in me. There's the status quo bias. There's the sense of where things are going. And there's also this response to apathy, uh, to, sorry, to need, which, which we call apathy. Apathy is a really fascinating word. Uh, it comes, we, we translate it to mean without feeling. Uh, that's often how you look it up in the dictionary, say without feeling. But the origin of the word is a Greek word, and it means without suffering. And what I love is how our apathy meets the status quo. Because if we frame change as loss, any time we meet the need of another, it's like it feels like it could be suffering. And so we close down, at least I close down often, is my natural response to the need of this world is, is to kind of have a shell, a wall. And what I find really hard right now is uh, how much we can reinforce our status quo. It's very easy in our day and age to, like, this is the big scandal with Facebook, right? Facebook was giving you an Amazon. All these algorithms are set up to tell you things that you want to hear because you've already looked at things like them. So we get entrenched in a certain way of thinking. Our status quo, our railway, gets reinforced by our news feeds, by all these things that are around us. And so right now, it is really hard to make the space to be confronted, right? Even when people confront us on the street, I'm like, nah, I ain't got time with you. If I see an article online that looks like it could confront me, I read the headline, and then I keep going. I, I have so many easy ways of filtering. What we don't have right now in our time is a good space to be disturbed, to actually be confronted by a need and to engage that issue in a healthy way, to take some small step of action. Where is that happening right now? And I can tell you, I feel the need. I, I, even as I was preparing these talks, I was like, I'm not good at this. I don't let myself be open to, to these things. And so right now, the spirit in the soapbox is actually us uh, trying to create the space to be confronted by different needs in our world, to hear from each other and from people, our, our friends, our community, who have let themselves be disturbed, who have let themselves be impacted by the needs of the world to then share it with us. And, and so that's kind of like a big hope, especially as we as a community uh, have this desire to be a peace-building community. I feel, I feel this, like, you know, we have this purpose statement. We want to help uh, build peace with those uh, seeking connection. We, we want to be peacemakers. Um, and so I'm often confronted by, like, where is the world in need of peace? And we often talk about peace as wholeness, as like a relational thing. So peace, like relationship with myself, uh, relation to, to, to people near me, to, from country to country, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from people group to people group, from us to God, from us to the environment. We want wholeness in those areas. But in order for us to be peacemakers, we must know where there is not peace. We must know where there's people being disturbed uh, and impacted. And so uh, what we're doing is we have this series, uh, which we're kind of playing off of the fact that once upon a time, they used to deliver soap in big boxes. And when they did, they had a bunch of crates lying around. And people would gather 
uh, around uh, areas like parks, and they would grab boxes, they would chuck them down, and some impassioned person would stand up on the soapbox and give a big rant. Usually it was political, right? But it was a big rant, a passionate speech about something they care about and something that you could do something about, right? The soapbox. And one, one thing that we believe is that when we encounter the Spirit of God, that God is always nudging us. God is leading, interacting with us, widening our view, and inspiring us to, to take action in a way that reflects that vision that God has for creation, for, for uh, the created world. And, and so we have a picture of uh, the Spirit who moves amongst humanity uh, and usually shows up to kind of help guide us, to pivot us, to take us to another place that, that shows more of God's kingdom. And uh, hence the name, the spirit and the soapbox, these two things. Now, we actually have a long tradition of this in the church. It's just one that uh, I think has a kind of a crazy reputation. And that's the prophetic tradition. And I, today, all I wanted to do is give us a quick intro to the work of the prophets and, and say, like, this is something that we make space for and the church has, because it's a need. We actually need it. And it's been lived out in our, in, amongst us for thousands of years um, with the way that the prophets have worked. And so um, what I wanted to do this morning is just give a brief intro to how the prophets embody the spirit in the soapbox and then ask uh, two things, like one for the speakers and one for us as listeners. Um, I have a strange kind of uh, curiosity with the prophets right now. Um, they're very weird. I was trying to think of some modern-day examples of somebody who might be close to how the Old Testament prophets interacted. And it's kind of tricky to find any modern-day uh, people who live out the sort of vibrant critique, kind of uh, guerrilla theater art form that prophets sort of play. Um, but, I mean, I kind of thought about Blanket Man for a moment, but I was like, he seems like <laughs> the closest strange example uh, and wasn't very vocal. But, but one of the things I was thinking of is how hard it is to actually speak about things we care about in our day and age, right? It seems like it's a very messy time to speak. And when I use the word prophet, I think that there, there's some like uh, flags go up for people about us having moments where we let the prophets amongst us speak. I think it feels like a very high bar. And what I wanted to do is study a little bit of the prophets to share back with the community how I think that this is almost uh, a core aspect of what it means to be church and community. The first thing that I want to talk about about the prophets is a common misconception, which is that prophets are fortune tellers. And uh, I think when we talk about like the work of prophets in our community or in in the world, like it often assumes that prophets just see the future. And it is, a, it is a part of the prophetic tradition. There's lots of instances where prophets in the Bible will see an event that's happening off in the future and they call it to attention. That's, it's very common, but most of the time that has relevance to how they were living right then and there. Uh, Abraham Heschel, who's, he wrote a book uh, about the prophets, a couple I think, uh, he says this about them, foretelling is an essential ingredient of the prophetic role. But essentially, the prophets were speaking the word of God for the here and now. And when they did prophesy about the future, it was ex to expose the divine perspective on the present. And I think that this is often what gets uh, like kind of challenging when we read the role of the prophets. They, are so, they use so much poetry and uh, imagery that we get all caught up in it and we can get lost in it. But what they're actually trying to do, prophets are trying to say, right now, how could we live differently in light 
uh, of who God is and what we're called to. And they do that in all sorts of interesting, intriguing ways, but that is their heart. Their heart is how we live now. And Walter Brueggemann talks about the prophetic role including two key components. Those two key components are critique, which we're kind of aware of, and energizing. Uh, prophets criticize, they offer a critique, and they offer energy to follow through. Um, and I just wanted to share with you some quotes from the prophets. So, one of, uh, one of the prophets who has like a, a, a really interesting way of critiquing is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says this, he says, Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So like, prophets have this like, amazing uh, way of pointing out, one, that relational dynamic to God. They seem to be so concerned with the people and how they're living true to God through the covenant. I love the imagery here, the spring of living water that we've traded off for some cistern, some hole we've dug that can't even keep water in it. And the prophet is critiquing a people, saying to them, the way that you're living, it's that kind of outside critique. The way that you're living is not true of who you are and who, uh, and who God is. Brueggemann has this kind of strange aside. He talks about how the prophets remind us that God is free. That God is not trapped by any church. This is that image in Revelation where Jesus stands outside the seven churches and offers a critique. And he, Brueggemann says how rare this is in the ancient world for a, a God to not be wed to a people with, without, like, with the ability to then critique them. Because the people were the sort of sign of the God's reign. And if the people were lost, if they didn't have authority or a kingdom, then the God was shown to be kind of void of power. But in Israel, God is free. He's free to critique. She's free to offer a different perspective. And that's what we see in the prophets. One of my favorite ones is uh, out of Amos. This is pretty famous. I, I find it hits me pretty hard, uh, this prophetic critique. It says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and the solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to music of the harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Prophets have a way of getting past the surface and saying, like, what's at the heart of this? They let themselves be disturbed to have sensitivity to that which is going on and say, like, what is really going on here? And I think this is a strange gift in our time, right? When we talk about apathy, we close ourselves down. We're not sensitive to the impact of things happening around us. And so we don't let ourselves see or hear uh, the way things are out of line with like, the word uh, and the movement of God. And so this is about prophetic critique. I actually think there's a few people in our community who are pretty gifted at this. There are ways of looking at how the system of the world is working, how communities and people groups are working, and saying that isn't right. That doesn't reflect the gift of God. That doesn't reflect uh, who we are. And critique is one of the first parts of what we're asking people when they come onto the soapbox. We're asking them, what's disturbed you? And that's what the prophets are sharing. They're sharing what's disturbed them. They've been disturbed by the hypocrisy. They're disturbed by the way people uh, are not living justly. 
but they also offer inspiration. They energize a community. And the energizing, uh, Brueggemann talks about this as energizing. He says, it is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of the imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the single one that the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. So like I was talking before about how uh, there's this kind of sense that we shell ourselves up, we get kind of numb, that I do, I, I close myself down. Brueggemann has this strange idea, which is quite compelling to me. He says that empires, especially kings, like kings here, like he was thinking of Egypt and Moses in this context, uh, they, they have a status quo that they're actually trying to protect because it's what's a, what gives them their power. And when they do that, numbness is one of their tools. Because if you're numb to it, you're benefiting from it enough that you will ignore the suffering of others. You don't think that there is any other way. There's just this way, just the way of the empire, just the way of the king, just the status quo. That's what there is. And he says what's crucial for a prophet uh, in a role is to wake us up to alternatives, that we can do it differently, that we can actually imagine a different way. And so that's kind of uh, an interesting challenge to the prophets is, is this ministry of the imagination. Can we actually imagine a different way? And the person that I go to for this from a prophet perspective is uh, Isaiah. And Isaiah has lots of amazing visions of an alternate way, of a different way that it looks. Uh, and this is just one of those kind of quick snippets from Isaiah 25. He says, on the mountain of the Lord Almighty will prepare a, a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. I find this one so beautiful, like as in terms of an energizing work of the prophet, energizing us to see that God cares for everyone. Like this is, you know, going from the woes to the statements of uh, promise, the statements of uh, hope. And so we see both those in the prophets. We see the critique, the woe to you, the uh, I hate these things, like that strong word from God. Uh, and then you also see these, these visions of, of beauty. And this is what we're hoping for, because when you look at the prophets, it's just, I find it so breathtaking that the prophets to me are an embodiment of uh, what happens when we open ourselves to God. There is inspiration, so the openness leads to inspiration. From the inspiration, it wakes up their imagination, and they speak in creative ways, new things, fresh ideas uh, that then challenge the world to kind of grow for the better. And so that's what I want to ask from, our, uh, uh, from, from the stool as we, as, we, as we go into the next series, is that people would just uh, would follow that step without int the intimidation. Because I know one thing that puts a lot of people off from the idea of stepping into the shoes of the prophets is the prophets always say, thus says the Lord, right? The word of the Lord. And the vision was from the Lord. They're, they're adamant that what they're saying is not them but it's what they received, right? And when I, when I was thinking about asking someone to stand on the soapbox and just offer us, us up something, I was like, why wouldn't I do it? I was like, because I, I'm not living out a great way of living, right? Who am I to stand on the soapbox? I don't nail any of my social engagement or any of the relational engagement that I feel like a prophet would be speaking out in our time against. Uh, 
So I just like set the bar really high. But a prophet, like if you think about it, like we put ourselves there and say we have to. We have to be worthy of that message. And a prophet's just saying, this is what I heard. It's not about me. It's about what I heard from God. I'm just sharing with you what I heard, what I experienced, what I saw. They, in the one way, are captivated by it. They're, they're, they go for, forward with it, but they're just humbly sharing the message they received. And that's, I guess, what I'm offering is permission. If anyone here wants to or will speak, it's permission to just say, I heard this nudge. I think it was from God, and I then took some small step, and I want to share it with you. We need that. It's a vulnerable act to actually say how you've been disturbed, right? Especially right now. We know, we know engagement in the issues of our time are messy. Uh, there's no clean answers. And so what I want is you to have permission, anyone here who's going to speak, to just share what you're, what you're hearing. Share what's grabbed your heart. Share with us, like, why it disturbs you, what, what, where your faith meets that, where your hope meets it. You don't have to have it all sorted out. You don't have to have, like, a clean, one-size-fits-all answer to it. Um, I just want people to have permission to speak their truth that they've received. And I think that's a vulnerable space that we create together in this series. So as we listen, like, to give people permission to speak that um, and not demand it be this tightly packaged, like, what? because, you know, every time you talk about, we actually did this thing, this is totally a random tangent. Uh, some friends and I, we, when we first start, we started Mosaic, we started a project called The Ladder Project. And what we were trying to do was engage in issues of our time that mattered. And so we, we spent all this time researching and working with groups. And what we found as we did that is that was, there was no solution anyone could identify that didn't potentially have adverse effects as well, right? And it just put us off. We froze. We were like, man, every single initiative we've found has negative consequences as well. There is no clean-cut answer to how we help each other. And that weight just killed us. And I realized, though, that, that the way that we work together and move forward, it takes the fumbling. It takes getting it wrong. That takes vulnerability. And I think that that's kind of what we're calling for. I'm not calling for anyone to think they need silver bullets. There aren't any. We know that. We know how we engage in the issues of our time. They're not clean. They're not perfect. Every solution causes some other problem. But how we move is by we stay faithful, vulnerable, humble as we keep working through those together to align with what we think God has called us to be as a, as a, as a race, as a group of people. And so it's permission to try, to speak, to help us move. Movement to me matters way more than perfect solutions. Cool, enough tangent. The last thing is really around how we hear. So that's about speakers. I hope people feel willing to step on the soapbox. It feels like a, uh, giving permission to that feels, feels big. But also to hear people is big. Because we're not making, uh, like I said before, we're pretty skilled at not listening to people who passionately tell us. Like Tim's been coming over to my house for months uh, talking to me about the impacts of how we eat, right? And I'm so good at ignoring. And he's so good at keeping coming and keep bringing it. Because but that's the truth, right? Like, we have shells. And, and you have permission to be here where you are. But I ask you to, to let your walls down, to let yourself be disturbed, to engage it again. 
uh, I've been reading a, a fantasy novel, and uh, they do this weird mind meld thing in the fantasy novel, and one student was getting taught about it, and he asked his teacher, like, how do I stay open to this connection? And the teacher said to him, do not close your mind. And I just was reflecting on that, like, how do we stay open when we don't close off? And what do we do to close off? And I'm like, I'm actually very aware of how I close myself off, how easily defensive I can get. Because as soon as I feel what someone's saying, how it impacts me, right, it's like, shell is up. And so what I'm asking of us as listeners is to hold ourselves open to make space to actually let what someone's saying disturb us. And then wrestle with it. I'm not asking anyone to blindly accept what someone has sh uh, to share with us, but to make the space and then uh, to, to hold our walls down to hear them. And then, then we can start to wrestle with it and, and chew on it and understand how to engage. But to first start from a place of receptivity. Because what I'm suggesting is I think that practice has kind of gone We've started to shell ourselves with all of our knowledge, all of our tools that we can argue so quickly against people's arguments so we don't have to hear or feel anything. And so this series to me, The Spirit in the Soapbox, is about vulnerability. It's a vulnerability series because it's vulnerable to share what you believe that, that's true for you and how you want to live in light of God. It's vulnerable to share the things of injustice that you see in the world. That's a vulnerable action. And I want to give permission for that vulnerability. And it's vulnerable to hear it, to receive it, to let someone's words hit you and say, I might want to live differently because of it. And I just ask that we do so with faith, that this would be a time like when we ask God to light a fire. This is about us. Do we tend to the, to the wood? Do we prepare the kindling so that when the spark hits, it can catch? And I guess that's what I'm asking for as we move. This, this talk is, was, uh, I was trying to help prepare the way for others, because I was like, I, I don't have the insights for uh, the different issues that have captured people. What I want is to prepare us to hear them, prepare us to make space for the speakers. And so what I thought we could do to close off is just spend a time uh, where we, 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 you can talk and pray uh, with each other about uh, how how you get ready, how you hear. So like in terms of how you hear is a very weird question. Um, how you open up to ideas. And so like, I, I thought we could just spend some time praying for, for this community that we would be a receptive place uh, for the next little while. And, and just to, to pray that we would hear from God, that we would be disturbed. I think Chris put that to us. Uh, we had a soiree, I don't remember how many years ago it was, and, and you suggested we do that. Two, two years ago. Uh, two years ago, we had a soiree about being, and then we did one. We did a soiree about uh, what disturbs you. And I think that that's, that that's essentially what stuck with me, is about this opening ourselves up is to be okay to be disturbed, to make space for that feeling. And I guess I'm, I'm, that's my prayer. My prayer is that we would be disturbed. Uh, and so that's what I, I want to make some time for now. It's just that we would take a moment to just pray, uh, that God would move uh, in our midst, that the Spirit would move in our midst and disturb us, uh, and that we would be open and, and kind of uh, anticipating that disruption.